This is the Energy Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. And the fact that we're using the earth as our source of energy, it makes it much easier to extract that energy and bring it to our home. That's what's going to be, I think, truly transformational to a lot of businesses. And hydrogen fuel cells enable that world you really can accomplish for a lot of use cases with batteries. By covering the surfaces in floating solar PV panels, you can not only generate electricity on site, you can actually purify the water. We're powered up. Let's flip the switch. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and welcome to the Energy Podcast Show brought to you by MarketScale. It's always great to be back in the studio voicing for another show. We're putting together a ton this week, so you should definitely be heading to marketscale.com slash industries to see the variety of podcast show content that we're putting together this week. We've got one in Pro-AV and AEC per usual, but we're also expanding out into building management, IoT, food and beverage, hospitality, sports, retail. I mean, really, it feels pretty endless, the kind of content that we're going to be getting on MarketScale incredible so definitely check those out but hey you're here for an energy show we're gonna give it to you speaking of energy i feel like this time of year is a pretty high energy season not just because everyone's in hopefully good spirits because of the holidays but literally it's a high energy time everyone's got their christmas lights on their house and i always wondered how much that's really costing people so i obviously had to look it up did you know that heavy users so we're talking the people that go all out Uh, Lights on the trim of the house, lights on the front, the moving reindeer, the dancing elves, whatever it is. Those people are spending $115 a month on just Christmas lights, and that doesn't include the rest of their energy bill. That's if they go incandescent. Now, what if we go LED? LED? 15, 15, not 115, $15 a month. Wow, what a surprising difference. This sounds like an ad for LED lights, but really it's just uh, it's just a testament to how technology continues to improve and uh, make the holiday season a little cheaper because we'd rather spend that $100 on another gift on a piece of an Apple Watch, right? Just a piece, not the whole thing. All right, enough about Christmas lights. Let's get some meaty content on this energy show. We've got two varied features for you. One, looking at the future of a familiar power source and its impact on local communities. The other feature, taking a look at the energy behind drones. We'll hear from the founder of BP Capital and Triline Index Solutions, Toby Lofton, who's helping us analyze a piece on MarketScale.com that's digging into the impact of increased production in the Permian Basin, that great basin located in Texas and New Mexico, and really looking at how one stretch of land is impacting not only the local regions, but the global oil market. We'll also hear from several market scale guests who we've sourced over the last year, looking at innovation in drone technology. Specifically, what's the best way to power them? Some say hydrogen fuel cells, others say battery power. We'll let them give their arguments and show how the right power means the best for drones. All right, so it's a packed show, a high-energy show, very dense. We're running off LED here, no incandescent, so (laughs) keeping it progressive. I'm looking forward to getting y'all this content. Let's go.
If there's one emerging technology that consistently grabs my attention and never seems to slow down with potential applications and upgrades, it's the drone. The most recent innovation came from MIT. Engineers ran some test flights on a new drone concept that's powered on ionic wind, meaning silent flight and lighter machines. I'll link the article in the description. But the first few tests took place in a gymnasium. Perhaps soon we could see this technology in our skies, one step closer to the humming silent flight of our favorite sci-fi ships. On market scale, we've had several guests explore the future of drone use. We even got to see it for ourselves firsthand when we went to Interdrone 2018 in Las Vegas. We've looked at upgrades in agricultural sensors, zero delay video, geomapping, and more. For the first feature on today's Energy Show podcast, we wanted to give you a little look back at some of our favorite drone content over the last year, and what other innovations are elevating drones from toy to tool. While at Interdrone, we got in the trenches and interviewed several innovators. Staying on the topic of energy, a big talking point at Interdrone was, how do we perfect what powers drones? Are batteries really the most efficient way to get drones airborne? Adam Schlender, senior associate with Doosan Mobility, gave us his insight on why hydrogen fuel cells could be a better answer. If there's one emerging technology that consistently grabs my attention and never seems to slow down with potential applications and upgrades, it's the drone. The most recent innovation came from MIT. Engineers ran some test flights on a new drone concept that's powered on ionic wind, meaning silent flight and lighter machines. I'll link the article in the description. But the first few tests took place in a gymnasium. Perhaps soon we could see this technology in our skies, one step closer to the humming silent flight of our favorite sci-fi ships. On market scale, we've had several guests explore the future of drone use. We even got to see it for ourselves firsthand when we went to Interdrone 2018 in Las Vegas. We've looked at upgrades in agricultural sensors, zero delay video, geomapping, and more. For the first feature on today's Energy Show podcast, we wanted to give you a little look back at some of our favorite drone content over the last year, and what other innovations are elevating drones from toy to tool. While at Interdrone, we got in the trenches and interviewed several innovators. Staying on the topic of energy, a big talking point at Interdrone was, how do we perfect what powers drones? Are batteries really the most efficient way to get drones airborne? Adam Schlender, senior associate with Doosan Mobility, gave us his insight on why hydrogen fuel cells could be a better answer. In the market, there's hydrogen fuel cells being used on small compact equipment, you know, forklifts and, and things along the lines of uh, Bobcat. So that's sort of already driven the, the miniaturization of it. Uh, today, you know, the, the unit is fairly large and we're, we're talking about, you know, fairly large uh, heavy lift sort of drones, which is great for a lot of the industrial use cases. Um, you know, in, into the future, could you miniaturize that and have a smaller unit that, you know, is achieving an hour of flight time, 90 minute flight time? You know, That'll, that'll be something that the market will help determine over time. There already is the hydrogen fuel cell distribution network in, in place that allows us to uh, do something to you know, deliver uh, fuel to, to customers you know, in, in a very efficient and cost-effective way, um, which makes, doesn't make as much sense for a million 
uh, you know, camera drone hobbyist folks, right? right. Like the, uh, the the logistics of that are you know complicated and bur- burdensome in that use case in that scenario. But in the world of uh, you know, kind of the industrial commercial world, it's actually removing removing friction from not having to buy, manage, maintain batteries. The fuel so- this fuel source just sort of shows up on at your location or on site. Right. Um, and and then also of course that you know just cost driver kind of coming from this like DIY world where you're building small little aircraft. That's kind of how we got to there with batteries for you know large serving. You know a lot of these. Uh, these are large area project, projects. It takes, you know, what would it be two to three days, you know, maybe even three to four days, where lighting conditions are changing and weather conditions are changing. Of you know, human labor to kind of piecemeal uh, the data collection out of these individual short flights. Now that can be one operator done in a morning or an afternoon uh, with the hydrogen fuel cell technology. So I think it's really, it's really powerful and like, uh, you know, it can really kind of reduce the uh, the biggest cost driver in operations, which is the the human in the loop. So of course, like disaster response use cases, instead of having a team of people people uh, flying small multi-rotors or, or a fixed wing, um, you could, you know, canvas a very large area uh, in, one, in one mission. And the, also the benefit of multiple payloads at one time. So there's sort of the other X factor of being able to have, you know, maybe thermal and RGB or an optical zoom and, uh, you know, multi-spectral camera, depending on the use case for like a true, you know, enterprise level, like drone, you know, aerial data program. Depending on exactly how much data you're, you're collecting, uh, you know, the just the, the the labor the labor savings pays for the unit in three to six months, kind of depending on you know how much data you're capturing, how frequently, right? Right. Um, so that that's a that's a huge uh, a value driver in in that respect. In the long term, and really what where this technology becomes you know deeply interesting, I think it applies to both drones and you know hydrogen fuel cells. Is you know in the the, the coming you know year two years when we enter the beyond visual line of sight world. Um, and you enter a sort of a, a full autonom- fully autonomous, uh, you know, sort of, uh, instead of the pilot on site, it's, you know, a pilot in a command center monitoring, monitoring multiple systems uh, flying at, at one time, you know, kind of the commodification of the operations cost, yeah. um, you know, kind of the, the cost per megabyte of, of the, the data, <laughs> right? right? Um, you know, that's what's going to be, I think, truly transformational to a lot of businesses. And hydrogen fuel cells enable, uh, you know, that world uh, with multi-rotors that just you really can uh, accomplish with uh, for a lot of use cases with with battery. We're talking about a 20 to 30 minute flight time becoming a two to three hour flight time. If you're really talking about you know enterprise level, like we're we're fully adopting a drone solution, we're digitizing all of our assets at you know the the frequency that is, is valuable. Um, you know we're capturing tons of data. We have a, like a full blown drone program. The 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 biggest cost driver is the the human in the loop, right? Which is kind of silly because you have this incredibly advanced, completely autonomous flying robot and you're, you're paying for a person to just stand there in the, uh, you know, very rare instance that, you know, they need to intervene because the, right. uh, the autonomy isn't functioning properly, right? right? Um, so, you know, if you, you take a 30 to 20 minute flight time, anybody who's, you know, spent much time flying drones, you know that if it's advertised as 30 minutes, it's actually more like 25 in the first place. And, <laughs> yeah. and you would never fly it right down to the last bit of battery power anyway. So really it, you're looking at like 15 to 20 minutes. Right, yeah, of, of flight time. And then and then you have to consider that the amount of time that you're spending getting to position and the time they're coming back. So you're looking at like 10 to 15 minutes of actual data collection right. in one given flight. And then you have, you know, human effort and labor and swapping the batteries and charging batteries, all these sort of things on either side of that, right? It, it almost makes it an inconvenience to use a drone. 
<laughs> right. So, so you know, so it, actually, what you end up with with the two to the hour flight time is you end up in like a ten x efficiency gain. Right. Not not looking at flight time, but looking at the amount of data that can be collected in a single flight. Right. So, right. so that takes. Adam wasn't the only one with an opinion on more efficient drone power. Another proponent of hydrogen fuel cell technology was Julian Hughes, senior vice president of Intelligent Energy. Fuel cell technology looks to be the solution for commercial drones, but Hughes thinks a better answer lies in multiple power sources, or hybridized energy. Firstly, um, batteries store energy. And once that energy is depleted, you then have to put that energy back in by way of charging for a period of time. Right. Fuel cells are different in that they produce energy at source. They don't store any energy. So as long as you've got hydrogen as your fuel, you can continuously um, generate power. So that's one benefit that you don't have to recharge the battery. It takes around three or, or so, or three or less minutes to fill the cylinder. So if you compare that three or four hours of charging a battery, that's one plus. Um, obviously, uh, duration, the longer flight time, the bigger the fuel tank, the longer flight time you're going to get. And, and yes, and, and we can dive into costs for, for a second, but the capital cost of a fuel cell, it is more than a battery. However, total cost of ownership is actually lower cost. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday. They said for a half day mission, which is around three or so hours, they're spending $10,000 on batteries. The product we have now, the 650 watt um, equivalent to that, is around $8,900, but that's your one cost. Right. Thereafter, you're just paying for hydrogen. Right. And at the moment, the market prices of hydrogen are around $15 a kilogram, and you only need around 30 grams to fly for an hour and a half. The smallest drone, really, that, that um, we can put fuel cells onto is around the Matrice 100 size drone, um, you know, about a foot and a half in diameter. Yeah. Um, going smaller than that, the fuel tank becomes too heavy for the power that's generated by a f smaller fuel cell. There are other methods of generating hydrogen. You can use chemical hydrides, and basically that's um, a, a chemistry that will, will produce hydrogen at source. It's a lot lighter than a, um, a cylinder. It's more expensive, and it's something for the future. So, and, and also that will allow you to have a more aesthetically pleasing design. The only other one I've seen potentially is I've seen solar panels on, on fixed-wing drones. However, solar alone will not give you the power you need. It's more of um, additional power just to extend flight time marginally. Right. Um, so again, a combination of technologies. We've explored other aspects in drone technology beyond just energy on market scale. Another big one is Wi-Fi connectivity. Dropping a connection while checking Instagram is not exactly catastrophic, but losing connection to a drone flying over a disaster area is another story. Professor Joseph Camp, Associate Professor of Electrical Engineering at Southern Methodist University's Lyle School of Engineering, gave us a look at SMU's funding for three-dimensional connectivity for drones and why it's so crucial. Only recently, within the last two or three years, have I come to realize that we've inherently made this two-dimensional assumption where everything is at the ground level and everything is flat. However, when you start dealing with drones, things start to become three-dimensional where you have to directly communicate below and above your, yourself from second to second. And so it, it really could be that your peer that you're trying to communicate 
could at one moment be below you and then things change over a split second and now that same uh, person or a different person or a different uh, drone is now above you and you have to switch to communicating above and that just doesn't happen as severely at, with Wi-Fi and cellular connectivity. It happens more severely in three dimensions with drones. There will be certainly elements of Wi-Fi and elements of cellular in our platform and we kind of take those for granted and run with those. However, there will certainly be developments. For example, if you have, uh, so we're making an assumption with this, uh, with this research that radios themselves are expensive, but the antennas are fairly cheap because they're, they're passive antennas and they don't have electrical um, components that they're being powered. So, and they're relatively light in weight. So our assumption is that if you use a limited number of radios because they have bulk and they have energy that are re they're required to use, then uh, and you can kind of plaster a number of different antennas on the drone, well, then you're going to have to take one or a few number of radios and connect them to many different antennas at different points in time. So, for example, one of the protocols and algorithms that we need to develop is understanding the current situation, and that can happen with different sensors on the drone. For example, the sensor could be a GPS or it could be, uh, it could be LiDAR, for example. Um, so some type of kind of light detection uh, between the drones, or it could be radar. Um, and all of those things will give you a feel for where you are and where your neighbor is and how you should use the different antenna arrays and how do you switch between the antennas and make those decisions on a dynamic basis and those kind of things we have to build uh from from the ground up because that's that's something new and unique from ground or 2d communication such as is in wi-fi or cellular Innovation in drone technology is always exciting, but perhaps more exciting is seeing these drones in action. Recently, catastrophic weather events like 2018's devastating hurricanes and the California wildfires have put drones on the front lines, surveying damage and doing search and rescue operations. Jonathan Ramirez, an account representative from Hangar, came on our podcast to explain how Hangar's drones helped save the day in Mendocino County, California. We have built uh, an app called Hangar 360. What it allows people to do who have a DJI drone, which is most people who have a drone, it allows them to fly that drone up and go up and capture at any altitude a 360. It's, in short, it's a series of 23 images that get stitched together and it makes a, a pretty amazing panoramic photo. So I say all of that because what they're doing is after the fire goes through, then they need to do some recon. You know, usually what they'll do is they'll, they'll close up roads. And so you've got a lot of very worried people who uh, are wondering, did my house make it? Uh, what's the state of things? Some people left pets behind, left vehicles behind. Essentially, all of their assets are right there on the land and they don't have the ability to go in and see it. So. Um, through help from Menlo Park Fire District, the Alameda County Sheriff's Department, Contra Costa Sheriff, and a bunch of other agencies, they're able to get drones into those areas, capture these 360s, which produce these beautiful high-res images, and they can actually check on 
uh, their properties and assess damage and even identify where there might still be uh, risks for fire to spread or worse in some cases, you know. Right, before we get to our second feature today, of course, got to bring you some industry news brought to you by MarketScale. Today, we're going to be hearing from Elmer Guardado. Elmer, take it away. These are your Energy News Minutes, brought to you by MarketScale. Our first story today is AI and drones in UK's energy infrastructure. National Grid, the firm that has been using drones to help inspect its 7,200 miles of overhead lines around England and Wales, has turned to AI to help maintain the wires that transmit electricity to homes and businesses from power stations. Designed with high-definition video and photo infrared cameras, the drones are used to assess the steelwork, wear and corrosion, and faults such as damaged conductors. Typically, this kind of work is undertaken by engineers who either physically climb up pylons or pilot helicopters to access these lines. National Grid's chief executive, John Pettigrew, said the company has now begun applying machine learning to study all drone footage to cut down on the time that human operators usually spend reviewing said footage. Pettigrew also said that, quote, the AI will determine the overall condition of the asset and whether it needs to be replaced or repaired. We are just developing this as a prototype. When we talk about digitization, it's real, practical, engineering-type stuff we're doing here. End quote. Our next story comes from China, as China sets targets for renewable energy. After the quick addition of solar and wind farms forced electricity companies to partly block energy from flowing into their systems, China has set three-year targets for adding more wind and solar power onto their power grid. China, a big world investor in clean energy, was forced to slow their renewable power rollout because some grids weren't ready to handle large increases. Nelson Lee, a Hong Kong-based analyst from ICBC International Research, wrote in a note that the re-emphasis of target as well as more detailed guidance to each province should be positive to the market sentiment. Wind operators are set to benefit from policy as they have a relatively high share of wind farm mix in provinces with new wind curtailment targets. China also plans on cutting costs to clean power while continuing to reduce development costs for renewable energy. And your last energy minute for the day, Exxon will use wind and solar power to produce crude oil in quote historically unprecedented end quote deal. West Texas is about to see ExxonMobil Corp use renewable energy to produce oil. Thanks to a 12-year agreement with Arstert AS, a Denmark power company, Exxon will be purchasing 500 megawatts of wind and solar power in the Permian Basin, the fastest growing US oil field. According to Bloomberg, this is by far the largest ever renewable energy contract signed by an oil company. Quote, it will be interesting to see how the other oil majors respond, said Kyle Harrison, a Bloomberg analyst, adding that a purchase like this has historically been unprecedented, end quote. Julie King, a spokeswoman for the Texas-based oil producer, said that, quote, Exxon frequently evaluates opportunities to diversify our power supply and ensure competitive costs, end quote. That's it for me. My name is Elmer Guardado, and these have been your Market Scale Energy Minutes. Our second feature today is a deeper dive into an article by Samaj Watts on our energy page. A really well-written look into the oil boom of the Permian Basin. I really think Samaj nailed this one. 
The 250 by 300 mile large area in Texas and New Mexico has, over the last decade, become an ever-growing part of the world's oil production. Right now it accounts for 30% of global oil. By 2025, that could be closer to 50%. That's right, one section accounting for 50% of global oil production. How is this one segment impacting the whole global oil trade? And even more close to home, how is this influx affecting local communities in the basin? Toby Lofton, founder of BP Capital and Triline Index Solutions, gave us his insight in Watts' article, and he rejoined us on the podcast to dig even deeper into the history and future of the Permian Basin. An increase in oil production means changes for locals, new and old. The housing market is skyrocketing as eager professionals flood the area looking for work, and people in the area are having to rapidly adjust to keep up. Lofton explains how the oil industry is maneuvering the economic pressure placed on the Permian Basin and its surrounding Texas and New Mexico cities. All right, so we're joined by Toby. Toby, great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So like I referenced earlier, the Permian Basin feature we had on our market scale energy page already sourced you actually, um, which is where I got your information and why I wanted to bring you back on the podcast because I think you gave some great insight, but I think there's so much more to unpack um, this whole impact on both the oil industry, but then just local economies in Texas and Southeast New Mexico is pretty unprecedented and pretty incredibly impactful, both positively and in some cases negatively. So I wanted to get your impact um, and your insight on all this. So Toby, after reading the article, um, obviously you have a lot of background with that area. Tell me a little bit about how this boom um, in extraction, which has already garnered 30 billion barrels and is looking to reach 60 to 70 billion more. How has that already impacted that area of Texas and Southeast New Mexico? Yeah, well, no, thanks for asking. And look, I, I think it's, it's important to put this into historical context. I agree. So let's go back to the seventies just okay. for a moment. So U.S. production peaked in the early 70s, and we went from roughly 10 million barrels per day all the way down to sub 5 million barrels per day and inflected off that bottom in 2009 to where today we are right at about 10.8 million barrels per day of U.S. crude oil production. And the two types of oil production that we're talking about are very different. I mean, one is conventional, where the decline rates are lower, meaning the year-over-year natural declines are about you know five percent or so. Whereas in unconventional production, those the average decline rate on a weighted average basis is about twenty-five percent. So hmm. if you think of it like a treadmill, like the treadmill that we're on right now is a very steep but very productive treadmill. So there's there's some unique characteristics associated with the the newly found production that I think are important to mention. But um but your question was really it's it's aimed at the Permian specifically. And, right. And and so let's again let's put that in context. So the Permian, which is widely West Texas, including you know uh, the southern part of New Mexico, uh it's the Midland Basin and the Delaware Basin primarily. And collectively in 2016 
there was roughly 2 million barrels per day coming out of the Permian. And the total U.S. crude oil production was about 8.8. So the Permian represented roughly 22% of total U.S. production. This year, by the end of 2018, the Permian will be right above 3.3 million barrels per day, total U.S. production at 10.8, so roughly 30%. And it's widely accepted or, or undisputed that by the time we get to 2025, the Permian could be as high as 7.8 million barrels per day, and total U.S. production could be 17. So that's about 46% hmm. of the total. So the, the point being that the Permian is going to pay, play an increasing role in U.S. Uh, oil production, and the U.S. itself is playing a crucial role in the global picture, leading supply growth amongst all the other countries in the world by by wide margin. So, Which is pretty incredible that this one area in Texas and New Mexico could be totally crucial to the entire global production of oil. That is right. And when you look at it, if you stack it up against uh, Iraq or Iran, like the total liquids production, so meaning oil plus the uh, ethane and propane natural gas liquids, you're looking at closer to 4.8 million barrels per day, which is larger than Iran prior to the sanctions being imposed. And Iraq is at about 5.4. So it, it does stack up versus other OPEC nations, meaning Texas, specifically the Permian, um, versus those other members. And we hadn't even talked about natural gas. And I, I know that, you know, the focal point is always on oil just because it's a, a global fungible commodity. But the associated gas production that's coming out of the Permian is affecting the rest of the country, meaning the price at the Waha hub, Waha is the, the West Texas natural gas hub. Uh, in some cases, it's it's gotten so low that it, it, it makes it uneconomic to to even uh, produce the natural gas. And it's, it's also affecting basis in other areas, meaning down in Henry, Louisiana, where the Henry hub, right. it's also affecting flows in the you know, Colorado and even up in the Marcellus. But from a global picture, that cheap natural gas is, is making LNG exported from the U.S. around the world uh, a viable long-term solution for countries like China, who's trying to get off of dirty coal and onto cleaner solutions like natural gas. So it's, it's more than just oil. Right. Which, you know, I guess doubly or triply impacts how um, how really crucial this area is. So why do you think or I'm sure there's a very tangible answer, but why is the Permian Basin exploding so recently as one of the key parts of global oil and uh, natural gas production? Well, look, I, I'll try to put it in simple terms. I mean, if you think of a, a, a stacked pay uh, zone, which is a lot like a, a cake that has multiple layers of icing in it. Which sounds the, delicious. It, it does. And it, <laughs> it's, it's delicious when you're thinking of it from a cash flow perspective because right. what happens from a producer's angle is they, they look at the, the Permian and they say, well, look, there's you know four – plus or minus zones from which we can achieve pay 
Whereas if you're in the Williston Basin in the Bakken, there's maybe two or, or one, depending on where you are. Or the Eagleford down in South Texas is primarily one or two zones. So the Permian is unique in that it is a stacked pay uh, where the drilling uh, efficiencies can be spread across uh, those multiple zones. And it's, it's more economic. There's economies of scale associated with it. So um, that's one reason. The other reason is just technological advancement that was forced really in the uh, price downturn of 2015 and 2016 forced mm-hmm. companies to just be more efficient. And so now they're you know, harvesting the, the benefits associated with that uh, ingenuity. Right, which is pretty incredible. So uh, now let's bring it back from that history to the effects on the local communities, because I think that is that is definitely the story that, you know, you can look big picture and you can look at how the Permian Basin is affecting global production. But I think when you look inward and you look at how are those areas in Texas and South New Mexico changing due to this growth of oil production in the Permian Basin. So tell me a bit about how this area has already been affected um, by increased production. So we can look at the housing market, we can look at an influx of workers. There's several different angles to take, but I'll I'll let you sort of give your insight on this. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you just a a funny story. I mean, when when we go out there, we oftentimes stay at the the Doubletree Hotel right there in downtown Midland. And you can usually get a, a pretty good idea of the level of activity in the local area by the spot price of the hotel rooms <laughs> where you're paying maybe, you know, five hundred, six hundred dollars a night Whoa. to go, you know, to a double tree, which is nothing I, I like double tree. I just don't want to pay five, six hundred dollars a night. Wow. <laughs> so, that is a you know, that's an incredible influx in price. Yeah. Well and it, look it's a sensational number for that area. But I mean if you go and and look at rent on a dollar per square foot, it becomes somewhat uh difficult for just a you know a, a normal person to find a job and and uh, operate in that area because the prices have been so largely uh, influenced by the activity, even to the point where even local schools were experiencing uh, loss of personnel to the oil patch. So there, there's some, you know, some there's positive, meaning the the tax receipts and and the activity and the jobs, but then there's some collateral damage that's unintended. But um, I think on the whole, when you look at uh, like the U.S., for example, uh, because the oil and gas production has surged and the oil intensity of U.S. GDP has fallen, if you look at today versus 2005, a 25% rise in oil prices only reduces U.S. GDP by about 0.2% versus prior to 2005, where a 25% rise in oil prices would have meant that GDP might have been affected to the tune of 1.3% to the negative. Hmm. So GDP in some states like Texas rises as oil prices climb. And so, you know, that makes the impact on inflation is just more benign because employment, even including the non-oil producing states, benefits from the pull from the oil sector. Right. So it's it's local and it's broad. I mean, you can even go down to, I'm I'm from Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's on the southwest corner of the state. And uh, the South African Synthetic Oil Limited Company, known as Sasol, is building a $15 billion ethane cracker there because they know that they can source ethane and propane as far as the eye can see, really coming from the Permian and other local areas. But 
why would a would a South African company build an ethane cracker in Louisiana if they weren't positive that you had supply nearby in the state of Texas and, and others? But right. you know, the, the growth in the Permian is 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 huge, and, and NGLs as well, natural gas liquids. Right, and I guess I guess what we see is for that local community, you get both an influx of people coming in from out of state wanting to capitalize on that market and those people probably bring a lot of business with them and invigorate that economy but then local people that have lived in the area and now are trying to struggle to keep up with rising uh, housing prices and uh, you know maybe forcing them to have to get two jobs or take a job alongside their sec you know to basically take a job in the oil sector outside of their regular, eight to five, um, I can see the positives and the negatives. Do you see that balancing out anytime soon, or do you think it's going to continue to be uh, more disparate of a gap? Well, look, I, I, I'm, I'm partial to the oil and gas industry. Sure. I feel like, you know, having spent the last you know, close to 10 years with Boone Pickens and the privilege of working with him and, and learning, you know, more and more about the heart of the industry and that it, it's, it is, it is ingenuity and it's concern for the environment, which is some folks don't believe that's the case. I think that they do a great job of doing what's right by shareholders and uh, even most recently the capital discipline focus that's been featured in many of the, the, uh, the calls, uh, quarterly earnings calls, as well as um, the idea that they're mindful of, of the environment. They know that they've got to be – They've got to be good stewards of the earth. And I know I'm kind of taking it in a different direction, but I think that if you looked at the way they treat their people, mm. this it, it's it's going to be a, an opportunity for, for the energy companies to to grow uh, not only from a global perspective, but uh, local and, and keep the, the folks in Midland uh, in a position to keep working. So I don't I don't look at it as, as negative on the net. I know there's going to be some examples where it's not so positive, sure. but um, we're we're supportive in that way. Definitely. And then what's, uh, I guess, pull it back out a little bit and look at the business itself um, with so much emphasis put on the Permian Basin for global oil production. Uh, how, how risky is that with, you know, weighing so much of the economy's production on one site? Um, you know, let's say one thing goes wrong. Does that put a real hamper in production? Are there safeguards in place to make sure that doesn't happen? I guess, how do you, how do you make sure that this one site stays operational? Well, look, that's, you're bringing up a good point because, you know, in the last year or so, there's been quite a debate about uh, whether or not there's enough infrastructure, meaning pipelines, to allow the exit of the oversupply in Midland to either reach Cushing, Oklahoma, or preferably the Gulf Coast so it can be exported. Because as, as recently as December of 2015, there was a crude oil export ban that was lifted. This is back in the, you know, in the Obama administration um, did that. So we have been uh, exporting over 2 million barrels per day uh, out of the U.S. to other parts of the globe. Uh, over the last 12 months. And the infrastructure that's needed to do that is crucial. And those are the solutions that are being put in place now to ensure that there's a flow of hydrocarbons, uh, namely oil, but including natural gas and natural gas liquids. So 
it, it's happening. In fact, by, by the middle of next year, you'll have sufficient um, pipeline capacity to, to meet the, the growing supply uh, out of the Permian. There was a period some months ago where the price differential in Midland was about $14 per barrel lower than that at the, uh, the Gulf Coast hmm. uh, in Louisiana. And that, that's just a function of oversupply in the short term, but we believe that's going to be largely alleviated going forward. Well, it's definitely a pretty critical moment here in the production of global oil, and especially for the local communities there in the Permian Basin. Um, with so much untapped oil still sitting there, like I said, 60 to 70 billion barrels, uh, it doesn't seem like production is going to slow down anytime soon. So it's going to be exciting to see how that continues to develop and, uh, you know, really as more people come in and as the industry stays mindful of those local communities, this could be a very positive thing for those communities for sure. Well, look, and, and what we did as a response is we created what's called the New York Stock Exchange Pickens Oil Response Index. And from that index, we, we launched uh, an ETF that's mm. uh, ticker symbol Boone, B-O-O-N. That's named in honor of Boone. And the idea of that index and the ETF that's based on it is that there's you need to take a balanced approach to investing in energy. It is, uh, you know, one way is to just invest in the upstream names, which are more price sensitive to changes in the commodity. But if you take a holistic view and you invest in the industrials and materials companies that benefit from this increase in supply growth and the demand pull globally, then that's that's likely a a, a better risk reward uh, profile for investing in energy. So again, that's the the Pickens uh, Oil Response Index, and the ticker symbol is Boon B O O N. Love it. I'll definitely have to give that a look, and I'll make sure to link that in the description of the podcast below. But thank you so much, Toby, for coming on the podcast and giving us your insight on this. Um, you know, it's it's been very fruitful. Now this is your second time giving us some Permian Basin insight on market scale energy, so it's been uh, it's been great. Thanks so much for coming on, Dan. Hope you have a good Christmas, man. Yes, thank you. Same to you. All right, everyone. Unfortunately, got to turn the lights off. That's it for this episode of the Market Scale Energy Podcast Show. I really loved that drone feature. It was just really cool to hear from all these different guests we've already had on and show how drones really are evolving at such a breakneck speed. I mean, whether we're talking about what's powering them or whether we're talking about how to maximize their connectivity or really just looking how they're being put to use solving tangible issues like the California wildfires. I mean, not solving the whole wildfire, but at least helping alleviate some of the search and rescue, some of the surveying, some of the cost management. It's pretty incredible. And I just love seeing this technology at work. So I hope all of y'all enjoyed today's episode. And if you want to be a part of next week's episode, you should definitely shoot me an email at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. If you are a thought leader, if you've got a great story to source, whether that's, I don't know, great new product, whether that's a great new trend in the industry, could be a big challenge in the industry, or could just be a personal story of yours that you think showcases something really essential to the energy industry, Give me a shout. Again, Daniel.Litwin, L-I-T-W-I-N, 
at marketscale.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's chat. All right, everyone. So that's it for today's episode. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous ones, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure to leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.